Well, good morning. Man, it's so great to see some of you that I haven't seen for some time. It's really, really good to see you back here. Dan and the band, you guys were spectacular this morning. Um, Back uh, when I led worship years ago, there was always the A band and the B band, and sometimes you had the C band, right? And one of the things I've noticed here with Dan and his group is they're all A bands. They're all just top notch. And the songs this morning, I pray that you listen to those words as you sang them, that you will let God uh, bring that revival in your heart that he needs to bring today. Children, fifth grade and under, it's been great to have you upstairs. You can go on down quietly for your time of teaching in Clubhouse. The rest of us, let's turn in our Bibles. We're going to be in the Old Testament today in a great, great book. We're only going to hit one chapter, Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. But this is one of those books that you want to go home today and you want to finish it out. It only takes you 20 minutes. I've read it four or five times this week. But you, you cannot miss the message in Ruth. Our sympathy continues to the Haywood family and to the family of Joe Fry's the Gadbury family who all uh, said goodbye to parents this week. And uh, we're so grateful that all three uh, were believers and they're at home in heaven. But we we understand your loss and we grieve with you. And I'm, I'm glad that all three families are with us today. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people... Your family, my family. Where you die, I will die. And may God deal with me ever so severely if, if anything but death separates us. Now, many of you are familiar with these words that Ruth spoke to her mother-in-law, Naomi. It was a commitment that she made, not just to her mother-in-law, but to God himself at a turning point in her life. And this commitment brought forth an amazing sequence of events that changed her story and allowed her to become a part of God's bigger, grander story. Now, this was a commitment that Ruth's mother-in-law and father-in-law once made in their life. They made a commitment like this. God, God, you're going to be my God. Where you lead me, that's where I'll go. That's where I'll stay unless you direct me otherwise. Lord, your people, this nation of Israel that you made me a part of, they will be my people. But when faced with exigent circumstances, those circumstances that press you, that press you up against the wall. When faced with those exigent circumstances, though, her mother and father-in-law, instead of leaning into God, decided to pick up and move. And it brought a devastating sequence of events to their life. Now, this is the question that we're answering this weekend. When faced with a tough set of circumstances, when the future seems grim or at best unclear, is it okay to step outside of God's commands? 
Is it okay to set those things aside and do what you think is best for yourself? Is it okay to bypass God? And here's the principle that I want you to grab hold of this weekend. And I know some of you in this room have come up against that moment right now in your life. And that is when these pressing circumstances come in your life, they call for one thing. And that is a greater, stronger, more pressing faith to lean into him. And so let's read together in Ruth chapter one, verse one. It begins in the days when the judges ruled. Now, right off the bat, God gives us this historical timeline. And it's important for us to understand the days when judges ruled. Remember God, he had brought freedom to his people, a freedom, a new land, houses they didn't build, vineyards that they didn't plant. He gave all of this to them. He led them from slavery and they were to live as salt and light. They were to live as sojourners. They were to represent God with their every word, with their every move, but yet they didn't. Reminds me a lot of the church today. Now, I think that you guys have been a very unique group over this last year, but when you look around us and you look, you look at the churches around the world right now that are struggling, And this is what happened to the nation of Israel. They would repeatedly give in to temptations. And so God, God would raise up men and women that were called judges during this period of time to lead them back to him. So in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, almost every time famine is mentioned in the Bible, it's associated with God's judgment against his people. When God's people would rebel, when God's people would turn away from him, when God's people would decide that what they thought that they should do was better than what he thought, then God would allow other nations to come in and take take their crops. He would allow drought to come. He would allow a physical famine to come, and his purpose was what? His purpose was to draw them back into himself. For them to align themselves again with his provision, with his daily care, and with his blessing. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now here's the first point that I want you to jot down on your outline. And that is how we respond to famine in any form is important. Now, we're not talking, or in this context, we're talking about a physical famine do it dealing with food, right? With food, daily, daily provision. Now, how many of you have gone without food in your life? But how many of us, all of us in this room, have dealt with famine on some level? Uh, You've experienced a famine in your marriage relationship. You get married, you're in love with each other, and then you you hit a dry spot. You hit a time when you have to choose. Am I going to lean into this? Am I going to love this person or am I going to pull back? Am I going to step 
away. Maybe your famine, maybe your famine is security at work, your finances, your time. Many, many have hit a famine in their health. Their health has been stripped away from them. Our response is critical. Here we have a father and a mother and two sons. They're in the middle of a famine, not unlike the famine that you and I will experience over and over again in this life, especially in those times when we have withdrawn ourselves or at best ignored God for a season. In the middle of this famine, they believed in God, they served God, they went to church, they made all the check marks, they shared community with other believers. But in the middle of this famine, in this difficult season of their life, they were faced with this question that we're looking at today. And that is, do we stay? Do we stay and do we rely on his promises? Do we trust him? Or do we go? Do we go someplace where things look a little bit better. You see, just 50 miles away, there was food, there was rain, there were good crops. Now let's pause here, and I want you to think back to that famine in your life, whether it was pain, emotional or or physical pain, a relationship hurdle, I want you to answer the question honestly this morning. What is it that you were or that you are hungry for? What is it it that seems to have been removed from you or just out of your reach? Just out of your reach. Is it stability, contentment? Is it security? Is it peace? Is it a job? That next stop in life, a career? Are you allowing your hunger to draw you to God or away from God? Now you say, oh, but but I'm taking God with me, right? Just because I relocate for a little while, just just because I make this commitment on the weekends outside of church, God's still with me. Well, let me ask you this question. Who's following who? 50 miles away, people seem to be just fine. The famine, it's affecting only, only Bethlehem, only Judah, only God's people. And so this man... This man chooses to not deal with the spiritual reasons underneath the famine, which by now, listen, this has gone on for generations and generations. There should be no doubt in his mind what this is. But instead of dealing with the spiritual responsibilities, instead of turning to God for help, he relocates his family to Moab. And you say, what's wrong with Moab? Isn't that like moving to Seymour or up to Columbus, that's just 50 miles away. The problem is, is that Moab was no place for God's people. How many of you have heard of it? And how many of you have experienced in your family generational sin? Have you ever heard that term? Whether you've heard the term or not, you've experienced it on some level. 
Generational sin is when a grandpa, maybe you've only heard stories about your grandpa and the life that he lived. Uh, he was funny, but when it came to drinking, when it came to carousing around, well, you've met, you've met aunts and uncles that you didn't even know existed because of his promiscuity. And then you look at the next generation, your mom and dad, and you see the same thing going on. And then in your life, when a relationship hurdle comes, well, well, you just jump ship and you go on to the next one. You're like, where did that come from? It's generational sin. It is something that happens to us over and over and over again until we say no more. I'm going to break this chain and I'm going to live differently. Well, the Moabites are a product of generational sin. It began with a man named Lot going to bed with his two daughters. And out of that was conceived a child by the name of Moab. And from Moab, this people group was born. And this people group didn't live differently. In fact, they lived just like their dad. They worshiped a God named Chemosh. And you know who Chemosh was? He was this guy that looks like that idol Buddha, right? You've seen how that big fat idol Buddha sits. Except this Chemosh, he had his hands out open on his lap. Why were his hands open? So that the Moabites could bring children and lay them on his lap as a burnt sacrifice to this inanimate God. And you say, well, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. That's extreme. But let me ask you. So you've never taken your children from midweek or weekend worship to be involved in a sport or a traveling thing so that they can build self-esteem or live out a dream that you weren't able to fulfill in your life. You've never gone to a bar looking for a date. You've never been upset about something or overcome with hopelessness and, and so you've just stayed at home instead of being with God's people. You've never set aside the promise of Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, this man, this man moves his wife and their two sons away from all of these things. He moves them from the church. He moves them from the fellowship of other believers, the worship of God to a place where God wasn't, where at best the only other believers around them were people just like them that didn't have the faith or the courage to stay. And interestingly, their physical famine was traded for what? Something just as serious, and that is spiritual Famine. You see, physical famine that is traded for spiritual famine brings one thing, and that one thing is disastrous consequences to your life. Verse 2, and the man's name was Elimelech. Now, I'm not much into names, right, and what they mean, except for when it came to my daughters, when both of our girls were born. Sarah comes from a family where they like to laugh and make fun of people all the time. I, I would never do that. But Sarah was most concerned about what their names would be. Because if they had certain initials, well, 
that would be a way that people could poke fun at them, right? If, if they had a first name and a middle name that kind of alluded to other things. Well, well, that you know, you've met those people, right? Where their parents were obviously intoxicated when they named their children. They, they didn't care about those things. And here it's important to know that this man, Elimelech, his name meant my God is king. And that's ironic, isn't it? Because he's not acting much like it. If God were his king, he would have trusted. If God were his king, he would have stayed. Yet he goes. And his wife, his wife, verse 2, says her name was Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet or sweetheart, which is going to become really ironic in a moment. And the name of their two sons, verse says, verse 2 says, is Malon and Kilion. They were from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab. And I want you to underline these words. Because what was supposed to be just a short trip, right? We say it this way. Oh, it's just a weekend away. Oh, it's just a season. Oh, it's just for a few months until it's safe to to come back until we can, we can be sure, right? What was supposed to be just a, a few weeks, just one season of harvest turned into forever. It turned into permanent. Now for all of us, especially us men, Elimelech serves for us and is an example of the significant decisions that we are charged to make. And if you are a single parent, then this charge rests on you alone. And that is the decisions that we make that impact others, especially our family, are significant. We're to do what? We're to put food on the table. We're to provide clothing and a, a roof over their heads were to make sure they get a proper education, take care of the basic needs. And Elimelech was obviously thinking about these things, right? He, he was hitting a home run. That's why he moved them was so that they could have that basic provision that he felt like they needed. But in this same way, he serves as a tragic example to us of a man who either didn't consider or just completely ignored the spiritual needs of his family, the responsibility of that. You see, when we decide where we'll live and how we will raise our children, we're deciding what activities that they'll be involved in and when. We're deciding the people that they will be around that will have influence over them. And when we decide that fellowship with other believers, people who believe the same way, people who are headed the same way, people who have the same or similar conditions about the way that they live their life, when we decide that none of that's important, and when we forget that who we put before them as examples and we put in front of them to build relationships with is critical to their future, we are setting our families up for significant, significant problems. And deciding to go to Moab, it wasn't just a simple move. But in deciding to go to Moab, Elimelech chose to leave the church. He chose to leave the fellowship, the worship of God, the accountability. 
He left no one, I want you to think about this, he left no one for his wife to talk with, to share life with, that loved and served God. You talk about messing up your wife. He left no one for his children to fall in love with. I want you to think about that. Let me tell you, when I look out there, it scares me to death at the choices presented to my two beautiful daughters. It's plum pitiful. And some of them have come from your family because you've ignored the spiritual responsibilities in raising them. He left no one for his children to fall in love with that loved God. And interestingly, he did this thinking that he was sparing his family. <laughs> sparing his family from death. But look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, what? Anybody else reading with me? He died. Why did he move to Moab? So he wouldn't die. What happened when he went to Moab? He died. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, there's a bit of hope in that, because especially in this, in this culture, two sons meant that she would be cared for. As she aged, they would bring her into their homes. But, but then something more tragic happens in verse 4. It says that they married Moabite women. <laughs> they married women who were carrying on the same generational sin as those who had come before them. One was named Orpah, what a name, and the other was Ruth. Now why can't God's people, why can't God's men marry unbelievers? Well, why can't they marry the Moabites? Why? Because they worship a totally different God, a false God. Because they had a completely different set of standards to live by. And this creates problems in the home. This creates problems raising children. This creates problems. It's one more tug on this family that once worshiped God that had now isolated themselves from God and his family. The name of the one was Orpah, the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion, what? <laughs> they died. Now, why did Elimelech move his two boys and his wife himself so they wouldn't die? What happened to them? They died in Moab. Hebrews 4.13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Do you understand that? That everything that goes on in our life matters to God. Every choice that we make, every challenge that we're faced with, and whether we remain faithful and steadfast and lean into him or choose to do our own thing. And the truth is, is that everything is uncovered. Everything is laid bare before him. He knows it no matter how hard you want to try to hide it. And we'll give an account for it one day. I can think of nothing worse than burying your spouse. I've been there. But burying your children? And this is what happened to Naomi. Her entire family was gone. But let me tell you what makes it even more painful. It's in verse 5. And there she was left without her two sons and her husband. 
I want you to think for a minute, what else was she left? Was she left with a church that would come around her and support her in Moab? No. Was she left with other people of faith in God who could come alongside of her and say, hey, I've been down this path. And you know where it says in the Old Testament that God is a, is a father to the fatherless, that, that God is a husband to the widow. So God, God's going to take care of you, Naomi. She didn't have anything of, of that. She didn't have anybody to pray for her, to walk with her and, and encourage her. And looking ahead to verse 20, she's bitter. Don't call me Naomi. She said, call me Mara because my life is bitter. Why was her life bitter? Because trading physical famine for spiritual famine always brings disastrous, terrible consequences. What are some of the consequences that you're living in in your life? You married to an unbeliever and now you have children and, and he does everything that he can to keep them at home while you, while church has become so important to you. Just one season away. <laughs> Watched last night. Beautiful little girl. She's done such a great job with the sport that she enjoys. In fact, she's traveled everywhere. And now, the parents want her to be in youth group. And she sits there and she doesn't know a soul. She used to know every, every kid in her age group. Naomi's been away from home for a long time. It was to be a short stay, became a lifetime, 10 years. This is where things take a turn. Verse 6. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab to Bethlehem, for she had heard. She got word. Someone sent her a text message. Maybe she saw it on Facebook. But the Lord had visited his people. Interesting. And he had brought food. And this is where we begin to see the theme of this chapter of Ruth unfold, and that is this. God's desire for us, when those pressing circumstances come, his desire for us is that we lean into him, that we trust him. It's easy to trust him when everything's great. That we look inwardly, that we take an introspective look and we say, God, why is this family, why is the United States of America the best country in the world? Why is it such a mess right now? Someone came up to me last night and said, did you know that child abuse has hit a record high? In one day, 10 referrals of children for bone scans. Why is it that way? Because we have rejected God. We've rejected his plan for marriage. We've rejected his plan for family. We've rejected his plan for our children. We've, we put them everything, every place else instead of before him. Physical famine is to point us to him. He draws himself to us so that he can address not only our physical needs, but our spiritual needs. This is God's desire. 
Verse 7, so Naomi set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. They make this conscious choice. Can you see the choice? The choice was to repent, right? To turn their back on Chemosh, to turn their back on their past, and to move towards God. To move towards a new beginning, a second chance for Orpah and Ruth, a brand new life with God. They're on their way back to where God's people are, the land of Judah. People that you notice aren't dead. (laughs) People who aren't starving to death. People who have been provided for by God. People who Stayed. Verse 8, then Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. And, and then she prays this prayer. But why would you tell? Why would you tell these two girls that came from such a disastrous path? Why would you tell them to just, to just stay, to go back? And, and then on top of that, to pray, well, well God, may, maybe God will bless you there. Why does she do that? Because she is so messed up at this point in her life. Ten years of being separated leaves you. It leaves you with doubt. It leaves you without hope. And in verse 13, Naomi does something that's very revealing. She says, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Who does Naomi hold is ultimately responsible for her circumstances, for her situation? Who? God. Now tell me, who decided to move to Moab? Naomi and Elimelech. Who decided to place their boys in a situation where the only choices for marriage were people who had grown up in this mess who would very likely take their own children one day and place them on the altar of Chemosh. Ruth is bitter. Or excuse me, Naomi is is bitter. Verse 14. They lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Now, Orpah's going to do what's considered, what's considered normal, ordinary. She goes back to her old life. In verse 15, Naomi, though, says to Ruth, See, your sister-in-law's gone back to her people and her gods. Why don't you go back with her? Still messed up. But Ruth said in verse 16, And here she speaks for the first time. It's the first time in her book, and her words are legendary. She speaks them as a vow, not just to her mother-in-law, but I want you to understand it's a vow to God when she says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I want to go. Where you're going to stay, I want to stay. Your people, your people back in Judah, Bethlehem, I want them to be my people. And your God, (laughs) I want to know. I want to know this God. You see, Ruth at this moment is literally at the proverbial fork in the road, right? I go back 
to Moab, I go back to worshiping Chemosh, or I go to Bethlehem. I go to God. Now, this is a bold move for her, especially a woman from that culture, because she would not be readily accepted by these people. As much as they should be, they wouldn't be. And that's a difference that we see today, thankfully, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, right? Hopefully, we're a people that when the Naomi's return home, when people come back who've been gone a long time, at least this is what I hear, is that they're greeted warmly, right? They're, they're accepted back in, just, just as they are expecting that God's going to make a change in them. But Ruth had to have extraordinary faith in order to do this. She goes on in verse 17. Where you die, that's where I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything. But death parts me from you. And when Naomi was, saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she, she stopped telling her to go back home. And this is what we see. And that is the power of the second family. The power of the second family is significant to overcoming spiritual famine. Huh. Uh, we hear people say all the time, I, I don't know how people do it without God. I don't know how people do it without the church. God's people who come around us See, Scripture says that you and I have two families. We have a family of birth, and then we have a family of our second birth, the church. We have a family that are blood relatives, and then we have a family that is brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. When trial and hardship come, we can run to our second family. We can run to the church who will walk through with us God's promises. They will encourage us. They will come alongside of us and remind us of others who have gone before us. And it's only then, as Paul writes, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. <laughs> you see, we grow spiritually in times of famine when we lean in to God with pressing faith. We'll no longer be tossed back and forth like infants by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. And boy, have we been just saturated by that. Ruth. Ruth, when left with a decision to stay with her family of birth or to go with her new spiritual family, she said, I'm, I'm going to Bethlehem. Naomi, even though she's bitter, Naomi chooses to return to a people that she can be vulnerable with, people that she can say, yes, I'm bitter with God. Yes, I'm empty. Yes, I'm hurt. <laughs> and in verse 19 to 21, that's exactly how she's greeted by the people who knew her 10 years earlier. 10 years or later, they surround her, they listen to her, and they begin to pour back into her the truth of God's love. Now, this first chapter... This first chapter ends this way in verse 22. It says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem 
as the barley harvest was beginning. Why is that significant? What is that? That's hope. That's the answer of God's promise to provide. So let me ask you, after all of that, I know that's a lot, but after all of that, is it okay? Is it okay when pressing circumstances come? Is it okay sometimes to set God and his commands off to the side? Is, is it okay to say, God, I, I don't know how you're gonna do this. I don't know how you're gonna, how you're gonna fix this, but things sure look a lot better here. And so I'm just gonna go here for a while, God, and, and, and I pray that you'll help me there. And all of a sudden, we turn our relationship around and we say, God, you follow me for a while. Is it okay to do that? Never. It's never okay. Trading physical famine always, for spiritual famine, always brings what? Disastrous consequences. It will set you back farther than you ever wanted to go. This weekend, I want to simply ask you, Sorry, I got distracted back there. Will you, will you, are you, are you like Ruth? Are you like Ruth today? And you've come from a place where God really wasn't set before you. You had parents and you had grandparents who, who didn't worship him, who only time you heard his name used was when you did something wrong and they were swearing at you. <laughs> Are you willing? Are you willing right now in the middle of the hurt and the, the brokenness that that's brought to your life and is bringing to your family now? Or are you willing to go someplace that you've never gone before like Ruth? Or are you willing to say, this God that you're speaking about, I, I want him to be my God. Uh, this people around me that were so nice and greeted me today, uh, I want them to be my people. I want them to be my church. More of us in this room are probably more like Naomi. Naomi, who, when faced with a terrible situation, we've just broken down We've stayed back. We've gone someplace that we thought we would never go, but we went there thinking we were doing the right thing. <laughs> and now we've got the opportunity to come home to him. Do you have the courage? Do you have the courage to face a group of people and say, I'm back and I want God to be the Lord of my life again, and I need your help? What is it that's brought famine in your life? Is it because you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, all of these things, all of these things are calling you this weekend to this next step. For some of you, it's to turn, to turn to him and to be baptized. For some of you, it's to say, hey, 
I love God, I've really never loved the church, and I need to change that. And you need to know the strength of the fellowship. You need to know the impact that that has on your family. Maybe you're new to this area, and you've got family. God's blessed you with that grandchildren, and you have heard how devastating it can be for them to not have Jesus as their Lord. Will you come and will you set an example for them now by choosing him and accepting him? The spirit of the living God is available to you today who can renew you, who can transform you, who can bring all of these things. If only you'll let him. Let's stand and let's pray together. Well, Father, um, you sure have packed a lot into one chapter of your word. But that's what we discover as we read your word. Some for the first time, some for the third, fourth, fifth, some on Saturday night who have read your word 27 times through and through. <laughs> Every time we look at it, it speaks. It cuts right through all of the, the stuff. And it gets right to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is, God, is that we're hungry. <laughs> we're hungry for so much these days. And Lord, there are so many things put before us that were, are said to satisfy, that are said to protect, that are said to be right, to be woke, to be accepted. Father, there are a lot of chemoshes, even in our homes, where we place not only ourselves, but the next generation, this generation, on the lap of those idols. Lord, today, may we choose you. May you be our God. May we stay where you have called us to stay. May we live where you've called us to live. May we share life with people that you have called us to share life with. And Father, when that day comes for us to die, may we die with you, that we would take our final breath here and our first breath in your holy presence. So Lord, may your spirit today move us. May we be moved. May we be awakened to you today. And may we grab hold that when these exigent circumstances come in our life, that, Lord, we won't fall, that we won't turn, but that we will lean in to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to respond, I want you to come as we sing.